0: know we skipped over a lot of stuff a lot of great stuff in Genesis It's, it's just a wonderful book to read and watch how people are learning to trust father God even though they don't call him father father is very rarely used in the old covenant one of the things that transitions is to come to see God as father right now he's just making himself known to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God I'm the one true God and I want you to learn to follow me they don't have the freedom to follow him like we do They still had a consciousness of sin. God was a scary presence to them. It's not one they sought out in the morning. Hey, let's go spend time with God. God was scary, demanding seemingly his ways, but it's not because God was that way. It's because they were lost in the darkness. Then they end up in captivity for some 400 years in Egypt, and it's a horrible, cruel slavery. And then God begins to deal with a, a, a man named Moses, who's growing up in Pharaoh's court because his Hebrew mom slips him into a river and she's rescued by Pharaoh's court and then he's raised as one of Pharaoh's kids and so he has all this. But one day, murders an Egyptian ends up in the backside of the wilderness. And now we're going to get a very, very different story. We're going to take the story now from Abraham, the father of faith, who's got this relationship with God that wasn't dependent on law, wasn't dependent on circumcision. He has a unilateral covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham. I will be your God. I will bless you to make you a blessing. Now with Moses, as they become from a tribe into a nation now, over 400 years, perhaps a million or more Israelites in slavery now in Egypt and God's ready to bring them out. He'd already warned Abraham that they were gonna know, his progeny would know captivity in Egypt and he would bring them back to the land that he'd promised Abraham when the fullness of the sin of the the people there had, had come to fruition. And we don't know what that means. Part of their time away, was because God was still dealing with these people in Canaan. And they were getting further and further and they end up pretty much in a place like the generation of Noah was where they're just... I don't know if the word beyond redemption counts. It's at least beyond what was available at the time before Christ had come into the world. So there's two things going on. They're reaching the full fullness of their sin and God's now ready to bring Israel out of that bondage and back into that place. And so Moses becomes that great deliverer and Exodus is the story of God dealing with Moses, bringing him into a relationship with him, bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt through incredible cataclysmic events as God puts these plagues on Egypt to get them to repent and to let the people go. And then Pharaoh's whose heart would harden, and God seems to be an agent of that hardness. Was he really, or is that just their perception? Paul says in Romans that God was actively hardening. So that's one of the things that you can take in and say, okay, now God seems to make clear something is going on here. Pharaoh's heart is being hardened, There is an incredible deliverance that the exodus becomes because of all the pain of it and because of all that was destroyed, the Passover becoming the premier celebration in the Israelite community of God's redemption, looking forward to a day where God's mercy passes over us. But at the same time, there's a lot of death and destruction going on among the Egyptians, whom God also loves. We know that now, we know that from the New Testament. Love your enemies. God. It wasn't God's hate for the Egyptians. I love the Israelites, I hate the Egyptians. The Egyptians were people that didn't know him, lost in the darkness certainly, were willing to enslave people. There's a lot going on there and God deals severely with them. Absolutely that's true. He does that to effect a deliverance that is so memorable. In the life of Israel that it kind of is to be their hinge point in keeping true to God even in the face of many more years before Christ would come into the world. Now it doesn't work. Israel continues to demonstrate this persistent unfaithfulness whether it's in the wilderness and begging for meat, whether it's the spies being afraid to go into the promised land because they're too big for us. God continues to make deliverance and life available the people, even through great miracles. I mean, the day Israel decides God's not big enough to take them into the promised land, do you know what they had for breakfast? Manna that fell from heaven that morning. They're living right in the midst. They got a pillar of fire by night over the camp and a cloud by day. They're living in the reality of God's care and protection, and they can't even do the next thing God asks because they're still thinking about our own strength and are we big enough for that? And so again, the story of God's faithfulness in view of man's unfaithfulness and and Moses' mistake of God wants him to speak to a rock and instead he strikes it. And there's something about that where, if we, we can look at his punishment, yeah, God just got ticked. So now you don't get to go in the promised land after all Moses did. I'm not sure it is that. I'm not sure it's anything more than, you know, I need a different person. You you've been through a lot with these people. And I Moses didn't get to a place of perfection. Surprise, surprise. And God needs Joshua now to lead the men. Joshua is going to be able to do what needs to be done at Jericho to what, march around the city seven times and blow trumpets that's a battle strategy I don't know that Moses would have been there I don't know that Moses Moses was a great guy he met with God no one knew God more than Moses up till that time and yet there wasn't in Moses yet the freedom to go on and do and so God chooses Joshua to be the one to take the children of Israel crossed into the promised land and now we've got this problem in the old covenant of, uh, is God an ethnic cleanser? Wipe out every man, woman, child, beast, animal. It's horrible what God asked them to do. It isn't all that uncommon. And I kinda want you to hold this in your heart. That's how tribes of that day conquered new territory. This is not new. This is if you conquer people, You kill them and wipe out all their stuff and you build your own civilization and that way you don't leave anything remaining to be competing with you in, in the future. Did God tell the Israelites to kill all the people and all the animals and all the children in that land? Or did they think he did when God told them to take the land? I think that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Could the sin have been such among them that God did need that whole civilization wiped out, including the animals? That's possible. I don't I wouldn't argue with that. It could be true. It's not ethnic cleansing. It's not God saying, I hate those people. We know a very different reality to God. Whatever caused that in the same thing that causes the flood in Noah's time causes this. There's a purpose of God unfolding to bring salvation in the world, and part of that means ending this civilization. How graphic did God want that to be? I think it's a great conversation to have. Knowing the Abba now, inside our relationship with Jesus, we get to ask, God, was this really you? Was this just their misunderstanding of you as as a conquering tribe in that day? Is this really what you wanted? And I don't know that I have a clear answer to that. But I don't mind asking the questions. I do know this. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not an ethnic cleanser. It wasn't just a matter of race and we won, you lost, we're going to kill all you and take it over as we've been taught to read it. it. Whatever needed to be done caused great pain in the heart of our Father. And he gets him in this land, and before he's done that, he's begun to deliver, which we're going to talk about this a little more later, the law and the rituals and the tabernacle. Does God really live in the Holy of Holies? Great question. Does he get the idea? Well, yeah, he did. He, that's where he lived. No, that's where the people wanted him. God said, okay, I'll let you think I'm there. Because when he showed up on Sinai to meet with all the people, what did they want to do? Run. (laughs) We don't want anything to do with that. God scares us to death. Why? It's the same shame that they're experiencing in the garden. It's when God, the holy God, gets near sin-stained humanity, it's just scary. I don't want to deal with that. Not because he's scary, but because we're scared. That's what the New Testament makes clear. God's not terrifying. We're terrified of him because of our shame. We withdraw. God still wants to be with his people. He's in the cloud of fire by night. He's in the cloud of by day. He's there with them in that sense. But they've, as long as they think, well, he's in that little box over there and only one guy's going in there a year, and we, then God is with us and we don't have to be scared of that because he's there. so He's not seeing what else we're doing. He's not seeing us build a golden calf. That's part of the illusion of this whole thing is he's stuck in that box over there somewhere. And yet, Jesus comes to show us, as Stephen's sermon said, God does not live in building maze. God was never living there in the sense that he wasn't living in their tents and living among them and living among the other peoples of the earth, however they were scattered around the world, seeking to make himself known. That's what we now know about this father. So the stereotype of he's in the box somewhere and you have to be righteous going in, all part of the mystique, all part of God. You're, you're so afraid in the dark and so shame-based. I'm going to give you some things to do that will let you contemplate me and begin. And I think this is part of that. Take a bowl of milk out to the stray dog and let him come a little closer and begin to it. I think that's what all of this is in the Old Covenant. God's given them rituals and things like, well, we can do some godly stuff and give some sacrifices so we don't have to think we're so horrible at the end of the day, it's not really working in the sense of redemption. It is working in the sense of they can feel like God's near them, and not have to panic and be be afraid. And so God begins to make inroads. The rituals again, the the, the foods, the the way women are treated. I mean, there's a lot in the old covenant that we'd love to tear into that we're not going to have time. To think that's why keeping these to 20 minutes, so I have to deal with the really difficult stuff. No, just kidding. <laughs> there's a book I'm going to recommend to you in a, a couple of sessions from here, and I'll show it to you later. But it talks about The pagan rituals of Canaan, when Abraham was there and then when Moses and the children of Israel come across the wilderness, and the things God asks the Israelites to do, even about women and about sacrifice, isn't unique to the time. Sacrifices were already being given. Uh, There were rituals about women just being property. What God does with the children of Israel is he takes them a step beyond where the pagan cultures were. Women are not just property in the old covenant law. There's a real change that's made in that it is as far as God wants to take us about women, it's not. And Jesus takes us so much further. But he's winning us out of the darkness. That blame of, of uh, Adams endured through the fallenness. And that woman that you gave me, she's the problem. And so that carried on through some of this darkness time and the blame and the man being predominant and what God said about the man and the woman and all those things. It manifested itself not in the ways God wanted, in the ways darkness distorted it. So the law and the rituals, even the foods, the cleansing, all those are meant to be a shadow of a greater reality, not the reality themselves. Hebrews tells us that. But they're living in those things as the first step out of the darkness, Not the final step, not the full step, first step. And we're going to go on and on in the story and see these things. So through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you're going to read Leviticus and Numbers, you're not going to spend a lot of time in Leviticus or Numbers. Numbers is a lot of genealogies. If you really want to study all that, I, I skim that stuff. There's some interesting names there where you kind of draw the lines of the story. But for the most part, they're people we don't know a thing about. It's just drawing the genealogies. And if you're bored with it, it's okay. Just move on. Leviticus, you're reading about old laws that don't count today, things that we'd look at and say, that's silly. You can't plant two crops in the same field. You can't eat shellfish. I mean, there's things that we'll look at now and go, boy, it's kind of goofy. We wouldn't do it that way today. No, we wouldn't because this is the first step out of the darkness, not the final step. So God's moving them. This, what I've called revelational flow, the book I'm going to recommend to you calls it redemptive movement if you care about all the details of my nature. His point in God moved them further into that story. And that during the time of David, some of the things he says in the Psalms and what Solomon writes in Proverbs, God moves them even further up this line. And then what the prophets begin to say, move them even further, that there's a whole redemptive movement that finally is fulfilled in Christ. And and we even see now there is no male or female. There is no distinction that makes any woman need to feel like she's second class. That was always in God's heart. But lost in the darkness, there were jumps we couldn't make. And for those of us that are always in a hurry, like, you know, I'm just praying that God will, you know, take away my desire for alcohol or my 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 desire for tobacco or, you know, whatever it is that we're kind of on, or my overeating, or and I pray to God take it away, or my depression or despair. he doesn't take it away and we we pray and we just we got God as this divine fixer that just waves his magic wand and we really get it right, he just fixes everything. And yet when you read the scriptures, you see that God's a God that meets us where we are and walks us out of those things, he's not in a hurry. Even when he comes to rescue the world, how does he come? Does he come on chariots of fire and rend the heavens and Jesus shows up? No, he started his life in this world the same way you did as a one-celled organism in the womb of a woman. That's how he begins, nine months in a womb. And then 30 years as a child growing up, God's not in a hurry to do what God does. God meets us where we are. And some of us, the the more lost we are, it takes time for God to engage this relationship with us and begin to walk us out where we can see truth. Because in our fallenness and brokenness, we keep hiding in the darkness. So Leviticus and Numbers, probably not more interesting books. Deuteronomy you get to, and now Deuteronomy is... Boy, it's, it's do good, get good, do bad, get bad. It's everything you fear is true. It's what we've been mostly taught about religion. Yes, it's by grace through faith the day you get saved. But 24 hours later now, you, you need to be a good Christian. And God's pleased with people who do these things, and God's displeased with people who do these things. And if you do the right things, God will bless you. If you that's all derived from Deuteronomy. That what, Deuteronomy is part of God's revelation at the time. It's God teaching people there's a way to live that's right and filled with blessing. And there's a way to live that just encourages the destruction going on. I'm going to show you that in external terms. But this, again, a counterpoint to Job. Because Job's saying, no, even righteous people suffer. Even people who are following God because of the way the world's wired. And we're going to find in the New Testament where Jesus says, as long as you're in the world, you will know trouble. And so he brings us into that life. So... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the stories of the children of Israel coming into the promised land, possessing it, coming right up to it. And then Joshua is the story of them possessing that. Joshua is a very different kind of person. And he leads the children of Israel into this possession of the promised land. And no, they don't do everything God tells them to do, if in fact God told them to do. They don't kill every man, woman, and child. They make treaties with some of the nations that they thought they were supposed to destroy. And that came back to bite them in the sense of their idolatry and the intermarrying that God didn't want them to do and how here was a people he was wanting to preserve longer, trying to do at least some of the right stuff. Never thought they'd be perfect knew the law couldn't redeem humanity. Paul makes that very, very clear. But at least somehow to have a people who could be faithful to him for some measure of time and keep sin somewhat at bay and in some sense keep them in a place where God could keep moving us forward out of the darkness and winning us into more and more space of his life. And so Joshua's us possessing the land and choose you this day whom you will serve. The last part of Joshua is a great, you read that and just, man, that's, that's where my life wants to live. Then the period of Judges is a strange time. God's at this point. It's been a family and Moses raised up to be a leader. So early the patriarchs are kind of the facilitating crowd. Moses is, then Joshua is on this military footing. Then they get into the promised land and they've possessed it. And the tribes have their various lands. And they end up with Judges in the land that kind of replace the archetypal uh, patriarch or, or the Moses-Joshua character. And these Judges as you read it, most of them are not great judges, but they're the ones that are kind of the leaders trying to keep order among the people, kind of lead them out to battle when they need to go to battle. And so we have this whole period of the judges and there's this kind of plaintive cry repeated over and over again in Judges. And everyone in did, Israel had no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's almost that longing for a king. People just can't be trusted. People are going to do what's right in their own eyes. And, and even the judges, Samson being one of the famous ones, uh, get very, very corrupted. We We do see beginning with the Judges and onward, the kind of leadership that men employ, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not in Scripture, but that's what we're seeing here and as we move into now as this nation of people become a kingdom. One story, this is where Ruth fits in. Ruth fits in right at the end of Judges. Ruth is a story about a Moabite who's who, who's, who's married to an Israelite, so it's kind of an intermarriage there. But then that her son dies, she, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, comes and redeems. It is the most incredible story of redemption in the Old Covenant, of faithfulness to God, even beyond her own family, upbringing, culture. She's remaining faithful to a God she doesn't really know, and God's redemption with her, and she becomes the great-grandmother of David. And so Ruth sets us up for what's going to come next. That is David and the monarchy of Israel.